jewishaudio on kaban.org. This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. Page 293, we're in the middle of learning Mishnah number 5 in chapter 6. Now the truth is that we ran out of time last week. And if we would have had time, we would have finished the entire Mishnah in one sitting. But that was not the case. So I'm going to ask everybody to try to remember what we learned about last week. And today is going to be more of a mystical reading of the Mishnah. That's not to say that if you're just joining us this week, that you're not going to be able to benefit. But only understand, we don't only read the Mishnah in a mystical syntax, we read it in a literal understanding as well. But today we're going to do a mystical reading. Okay, so just to refresh everybody's memory quickly, I'm going to recap the Mishnah and point out some of the difficulties and then approach it to begin with, uh, with a, uh, a loftier vantage point. The Mishnah talks about Torah study. And the Mishnah tells us that you, the serious student of Torah, do not seek greatness, do not seek honor, do not lust honor. More than you're willing to learn, you should do. And you shouldn't lust the tables of kings. Because your table is greater than theirs Your crown is greater than theirs And finally Your employer is trustworthy And he will recompense appropriately That's what the Mishnah says And a number of problems that we encountered here Is the Mishnah seems a little bit redundant First we talk about greatness Then we talk about honor Why the necessary redundancy If you're not going to look for greatness Why would you lust for honor the Mishnah talks about learning and doing, which seem to be two different approaches in Yiddishkeit. And when we're talking about the importance of Torah study specifically, the emphasis should be on Torah study, not on Asay or Asiya, not on doing, not on performing mitzvahs. We talk about not lusting for the tables of kings, and we talk about their crown. The distinction between table and crown, again, seems redundant. And finally, this issue of trust God, he's a good employer. Where did that come from? Okay, so on a mystical perspective, when we talk about Torah study, Torah study can be looked at in two fashions. Theoretical Torah study and practical Torah study. To be sure, the world of academia in general is divided in these two categories. Certain subjects are studied for the sake of studying. Very often you find kids who graduate with a B in philosophy. So you say, now what are you going to do for a living? (laughs) So I'm learning philosophy. So what's the point? Why are you going to university? Well, maybe I'll go to law school now. So why don't you go to law school to begin with? So there's this idea that people want to get educated. Even though they're not going to be able to do anything specific with their education. Well, within Torah, there's also the idea of getting educated. But it's not chas v'shalom for self-gain or for being able to make a living. But there's this idea of Torah knowledge. Having Torah awareness. And then somebody goes to school specifically to learn how to do something. If you go to accounting school to learn theoretical accounting, but you don't know how to fill out a tax return, you wasted a few years. Imagine you sit down and you're at the operating table, a doctor says, I'm not really into technical stuff. I, it was, for me, it's all theory. That's very nice. Why don't you operate in the guy next door? I mean, like, <laughs> you want somebody who knows what they're doing. So within the realm of academia or any type of study, we have pragmatic study, which is learning how to do something. And then we have theoretical study. So within Torah, there is theoretical Torah. And the theoretical Torah sometimes is not so theoretical. 
it's a homily, it's, a, it's, it's an inspiration, it's something that has relevance or meaning, but not in a typical halachic perspective. So yeah, it's a very nice Torah idea. So what should I actually do? Well, you should actually get inspired. Okay, very nice. Is there a specific marching order? Do I have to eat something at a specific time in a specific way? The answer is not unless you learn the halachas of eating matzah. Or a different halacha. So the study of halacha refers to specific areas of Torah that directly impact how you should behave yourself. What you should do. What is greater? Is the theoretical Torah study greater? Or is the study of halacha greater? Or better yet, what's more important? The truth is that from a certain perspective, if you don't know what to do, if you have lots of Torah theory, but you have no idea of how to actually do mitzvahs, it would seem you're wasting your time. So you have all this Torah knowledge, but you don't know how to do anything. You don't know how to keep Shabbos. You don't know how to eat kosher. You're not sure how to even light Shabbat candles because you never learned the halacha. But you know philosophy. Something very serious is missing. On the other hand, of course, if we only learn about the technicalities of Judaism, Judaism tends to become very dry and tends to become a little bit lackluster. So both are necessary. We have to learn halachas hanegis, which is practical halachas, and every year it has to have a class in practical halacha, and you have to constantly upgrade your awareness of what and how to do. But at the same time, you need to have a deeper appreciation of Judaism and an understanding of Torah. By doing so, you understand the message, the inspiration, you value a mitzvah, it becomes something done meaningfully. Now, just as we have these two areas within Torah study, within one who might be considered a master of Torah, we also have these two areas. As we discussed last week, you can have somebody whose expertise is teaching Torah, academically, and somebody else whose job or whose mandate is to rule halacha. So they deal with practical rabbinics. A practical rabbinics on the highest level is issues that are not cut and dry. Gray issues. Like major issues that come up today, whether it's due, due to scientific breakthrough or the new technology of medicine, where rabbis have to look at something that has never been dealt with before. And say, how do we apply the halacha in this specific case? This is called, what we call, we call that a rav. A rav is a, a paisik, a senior rav whose job is to understand how to implement the Torah in the most practical way. From a specific perspective, the Rav is the most respected type of figure in Judaism. Because that person tells you what to do. It's not a question of inspiration. It's not a question of nicety. It's not a question even of, of mysticism. It's a question of practically speaking. And the word of that person becomes law. That's called gedula. That's called greatness. So the Mishnah comes along and tells you, Al-Tavakish gedula. Don't seek this greatness. Greatness is not something that a person should look for. Don't say, I want to impose my word and my understanding. Thou tachmod kavod. Don't lust for honor. The difference between these two is obvious. One prevents you from actually doing something, whereas the other tells you what not to think about. So somebody could say, I'm not going to actively seek it, but boy, do I wish it would come my way. The first is tevakesh actually seeking or looking for it Tachmod is the idea of it's something you lust for something you desire something you wish you had so the Mishnah comes along very interestingly and says in case you think that the whole purpose of Torah study is greatness is for you to rise in stature and become the one who tells other people what to do you're making a mistake Al-Tavakish don't look for it not only you shouldn't look for it Al-Tachmod 
Don't even lust it. Don't even desire it. So now we have taken the air out of the balloon. Basically we told the person that learning Torah is not about self-aggrandizement. It's not about your position. It's not about how you're going to be able to achieve prominence. It's not about you. It's Hashem's Torah. Don't look for your greatness. Don't even lust the honor. It doesn't matter if you always remain in the last row in the class. As long as you're learning Hashem's Torah, that's what counts. And that's the most important thing. For the student of Torah, the most valuable lesson to learn is that Torah study in and of itself is a tremendous, tremendous activity. Something that brings us close to Hashem, something that makes us more spiritual, brings holiness to our family, and changes the environment that we live in. Not because of a title we have, not because you have achieved some sort of greatness, not because you have honor, but because you have the merit to study Torah. The greatest thing in the world. The problem is that communist societies tend to fail. How come? Because human beings were created with a need or a drive for self-fulfillment. A person wants to know that they have achieved something. So even the student of philosophy wants to know they have a BA hanging in their office. Why? I accomplished. What's the difference? If you know something, so you know it. If you don't know it, all the wallpaper in the world is not going to make a difference. So why do you need the piece of paper so badly for it? Because a person feels a sense of accomplishment. A person feels a sense of pride. They could even tell somebody, yes, I have a BA, I have an MA, I have a PhD. It's a sense of accomplishment. The problem is, here we're saying to the person, don't look for the accomplishment. Torah study is not about you accomplishing. It's not about you saying, I mastered this, that, or the other thing. I am now an expert in this area of Torah or in the other area of Torah. In case anybody has questions, I'm ready to hang my shingle up. Come ask me your questions. I know. I am. But that's not what Torah is about. Don't look for it. Don't actively pursue it. Don't even lust it. So we have now a person who is possibly going to lose their drive. This is a danger. Communism is wonderful in paper, in theory, but in practice it's a disaster. It's terrible. Because what happened is, when the communist infrastructure went into place, everybody's base instinct for selfishness was fully activated. So the people who were the communist party heads did exactly what the capitalists were doing. Very lofty idea, sounded great, it didn't work. It could work maybe in a small kibbutz. And that's as long as everybody is very, very idealistic. But the moment the, for the last generation was gone, a new generation came along, and the idealism was gone, and the fervor for Zionism was gone, and the need to farm the land was gone. So all the kibbutzim are turning into other kinds of agencies today. They're undergoing a facelift. It's becoming a business. Everybody owns share, people want to gain. So when we talk about Torah study, if we're going to give people greatness, if you feel, you know what, if I keep studying, I'm going to reach one level or the other level, I'm going to get a new title, I'm going to be official, I'm going to be respected, people have a drive. But if you take that away, so along with the lack of achievement, we may also lose ambition. And if we lose ambition, we lose, achieve, we lose people being able to focus, people being excited. So the Mishnah says... That Torah study is really, it's Avodah Tashem, which means to serve God. And you know, the word Avodah in Hebrew is synonymous with the word Evid. And Evid is a noun for a person who's a slave. And a slave is an individual who does something not because he or she is going to gain, but because that's he or she's lot. That's who they are. They're a slave. So a slave devotes themselves to doing the master's bidding. Even though the slave is never going to get a promotion. It's a very difficult thing. 
The slave is not very excited about what they're doing. They force themselves to do it. Sometimes it's because if they don't do it, they're going to get in trouble. Other times it's because they make a calculation. This way, at least they get fed. They have a roof over their head. So, I'll force myself. I don't really like what I'm doing, I'll do it anyway. There's lots of people that are in slavery today. You just call it a different name. They have a job. They hate their boss and they hate their job. So why do they go to work for? Because they have to pay the bills, that's all. So they say, okay, it's a necessary evil. I spend five hours a day, I get by it, it's not too bad. And that's it, I can pay my bills. You think that the Torah slavery was any different than today's jobs? You make a big mistake. People open up the Torah, they come across slavery, they say, oh, it's terrible slavery. How could the Torah be an enlightened document when it talks about such a backward institution? It's not backward at all. If you read the Torah's laws on slavery, it was a very good life being a slave. You had no pressure, you had no stress, you always had a roof over your head, you had to be treated with kid loves. The best union couldn't get you what the Torah got you if you're a slave. When I finish reading all the halachas of the Torah, I know one thing. I don't want to be a slave, I'm not sure. I certainly don't want to be a master. <laughs> Too stressful. You always get into trouble. So a person who's a slave, just they do it. You don't have a geschmack, you don't have an enjoyment, it's not an ambition, a self-fulfilling thing. It's a thing you do. On one hand, this sounds lackluster. You say, well, that's all? I'm just going to do it because, because it's the right thing to do? On the other hand, though, that is what true devotion is all about. The person who works in the company because they're looking for their own achievement, their own promotion. And then they find out that they can make more money or get a bigger promotion working for the competition. What do they do? So you switch to the competition. So who is it really all about? It's really all about you. Now in business, that's fine. There's nothing wrong if it's about you. But if it comes to serving Hashem and it's all about you, then we have a problem. Because serving Hashem is supposed to be about who? It's supposed to be about God, not about you. Right? There's a famous anecdote about this. I think I shared it with you before. Somebody came to the rabbi and informed him that he was cashing in his show membership. He's going to be leaving the synagogue. The rabbi said, I'm sorry to hear that. Did somebody offend you? He says, No, I'm just I'm leaving Judaism. I'm, I'm stopping my involvement. The rabbi said, How come? I said, well, you know, I was a little confused and I came here a few years ago looking to find myself. And it hasn't been working, so I may as well stop wasting my money. So the rabbi said to him, your mistake is you came to find yourself. I was always taught you come to Judaism to lose yourself. The whole purpose of Avedis Hashem means to transcend self. There's lots of selfishness out there. This is not another way to experience selfishness. This is not another way to have fun. Not even a nicer, finer, more glamorous way, a more spiritual way to have fun. This is not about us. This is about God. And that's the meaning of Avodah Hashem. Avodah comes from the word Evet. To do what Hashem wants because it's the right thing to do. It just so happens that if you live your life the way, you will be fulfilled. just so happens to be. Because you won't have to keep asking yourself if you're happy. Since you're doing what you were created for, when something functions in the function it was created for, it functions. And when everything functions, you don't have to feel anything. Your kishkas don't hurt you. You're in good shape. You have a stomach ache, something's wrong. When you start to feel yourself, something's out of whack. We were not created to feel ourselves. We're not created to serve ourselves. Aninivresi, the Mishnah says elsewhere, Lishamish is Konya. I was created to serve my master. So true fulfillment and true happiness will come the more self-effacing we are, the more devoted to Hashem we are, the more happy we're going to be. It may not seem that way. And in the, in the micro, sometimes it gets frustrating, but in the macro, in the big picture, that is the loftiest and most fulfilling way to live. Just like we could say to somebody that the greatest joy in the world is parenthood. Nothing more enjoyable, nothing more rewarding, nothing more fulfilling. There's also nothing more vexing. <laughs> but 
Four o'clock in the morning, I'm not interested in getting out of bed to put the pacifier back into the baby's mouth. I'm the father, I have no choice, I have to do it. Right? So it's very frustrating in the middle of the night. And you go walk around like a zombie and days turn into nights. And why didn't the kid just sleep and leave me alone? Right? But is there anything more fulfilling or wonderful? No. So the same thing as Yiddishkeit, it's like a macro and a micro. In the micro, it gets frustrating. You're hungry, you want to eat, everybody else is eating, and you're stuck. You're drinking water. It's frustrating. You only eat kosher. You have a great deal to, to sign, and then boom, it's yomtif. Oh, you have to be yomtif today? Come on, I couldn't have a closing today. My, my friend is going to pull ahead of me now. Yeah, maybe. Very frustrating. But in the macro, when a yid lives a life the way Hashem wants them to, it's the most fulfilling thing in the world. So the Mishnah says, Yaser milimudach. More than your own achievement within study. And there is a certain sense of fulfillment, sense of accomplishment. When you know something, you work at something, you have it mastered, you feel good about it. That's not the most important thing that the Mishnah says. The most important thing is asay. Asay is to do, which signifies the kind of learning that is subservient. Because Hashem says. There's a similar expression. The Rebbe explains that this idea, Yesem Belibudah is actually based on a biblical precedent. The Chumash says, we read this a few months back, in Bechukosai Telechu, if you will walk in my statutes, Viet Mitzvotai Tishmoru, and you will keep my mitzvahs. So we have Torah study, and we have mitzvahs. What else is left in the realm of serving God? It seems to cover all the bases, right? Torah study and mitzvahs. Then the verse says, Va'asitam otam, you'll do them. So everybody who reads this verse and thinks for a moment says, one second. That's the idea of Torah study already. keeping mitzvahs. Because if the Chukosaitalechu is doing mitzvahs, why does it have to say mitzvotaitishmuru? Obviously, if Torah says, walk in my ways and keep my mitzvahs, so we have Torah study covered and we have mitzvahs covered. So what's the asitamotam? The above in Hebrew is and. Study Torah, do mitzvahs, and do it. What's and do it? So Rashi says, I'll tell you a little secret. There's Torah study and there's Torah study. There's Torah study, you learn a little in a day, you have your class once a week, twice a week, whatever it is. And that's Bhakkotitalechum. And then I have Ba'asitamotam says Rashi, Shatihiyu Amelim Batorah. That you should toil in Torah. So there's Torah study and Torah toil. What is, how does the, the scripture refer to Torah toil? Which word? To do it. Because relative to the academia that I enjoy, studying or forcing myself to study becomes almost as dry as a deed. It's just something I'm doing. It's not something I'm enjoying. It's not something, my mind is not exploding with creativity. And toiling in Torah means, on a very simple level, when you budget in an hour to learn, or five minutes to learn, and you're going to read something and think about it, and then you're going to spend an extra five minutes. That's very difficult. The extra five minutes makes the whole difference. The Gemara says a fascinating thing. What is the difference, the Gemara queries, between he who serves Hashem, a servant of God, and he who doesn't? Very profound question. The Gemara says, I'll tell you what the difference is. The one who doesn't serve God reviews his studies a hundred times. The one who serves God reviews his studies a hundred and one times. So the Altareb asks Antanya, what's going on here? Somebody reviews his lesson a hundred times. No, he didn't serve God. A hundred and one times? That's called serving God. How does that one time make all the difference? And the answer is, he says, 
that the Gemara connects us to Shuk Shochamorim, to a marketplace where they rent donkeys. Let me put it into modern syntax for you. A car rental. So on your car rental, you can rent a car and you get a thousand miles for a week. Or you get a hundred miles a day. What happens if you go over that limit? All of a sudden you stop paying five dollars a mile. It's one mile. Why is all of a sudden you let me go a hundred miles? I went a hundred one miles, you charge me all of a sudden? The answer is this is our parameters. Whatever our lines are. It's not 99, it's not 101. 100 is the line we drew. You went beyond the line, now you have to start paying. Every one of us draws a line. It's things we do and things we don't do. This is who I am and this is something that don't ask me. That's, that's beyond. So the Torah wants us to know that when a Jew goes beyond his habitual commitment, Yeser merigilusa, says the Gemara, more than what you are ragil, more than what you are accustomed to doing, that's when you start to serve Hashem. In the times of the Talmud, every disciple would learn each lesson a hundred times. That's why they knew it by heart. If they would learn something, they reviewed it again and again and again and again. And after you review it a hundred times, you don't have to commit it to memory. It's etched in your brain. And they were used to studying a hundred times. Now you know when you've got to do something very long, very tedious, you finally finish it. That that's it. I did it. You, know, you did it, now go back. Please, no, don't do this to me again. I spent a hundred hours, don't ask me to do one more hour. That, says the Gemara, is all the difference between somebody who serves Hashem and one who doesn't. Doing what you're accustomed to or comfortable doing and doing what is a challenge. Very often, people will say, I'm comfortable with my Judaism. Please, don't, don't, don't make me uncomfortable. I'm very happy and satisfied with the place I occupy now. And the Torah's answer to that is, that's terrible. We should never be comfortable. Because the moment you're comfortable, you stop serving Hashem. Which means yesterday I could have done an incredible thing and I could have gone beyond my limitation and I did the 101st mile and I was a servant of Hashem. But a week later I'm quite accustomed to it now. Now? Now go beyond that. It's just like the person in the gym who's working out and they're used to doing 25 push-ups. And they finally got the 25 push-ups and they're finally comfortable with it. So you got to do 30 now. Oh please, don't, don't do this to me. I'm comfortable. I have it down pat. Everything is in place already. This is the meaning in the Mishnah, Yeser Melimuda Chasei. More than learning, do it. We're not talking about something other than learning. This Mishnah is all about learning. Toil and Torah. Learn the Torah in a way that you're not comfortable. That's beyond what, it's, it's a demand. It's something that, that, that's hard for you to do. And that's when you start to serve Hashem. And that's what Torah study is all about. If anybody told you that Torah study is fun and games, and that the purpose of Torah study is to stimulate your heart and mind and it's just going to be an enjoyable experience and that's all there is to Torah study it's not true, it's a big lie that's a great deal of Torah study Torah study is enjoyable and it is dynamic and it does help you think and it has dividends in many ways both spiritual and material but that's not the meaning of real Torah study real Torah study means to force yourself to toil in Torah to study something that is hard for me to understand a book or, 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 a, or a text I'm not used to and to work at it and to try to work my mind out and try to think about it until I'm able to understand the concept to spend the time toiling mental toil is very difficult sometimes it's much easier to do push-ups it's very hard to work with your mind it's very hard to read something which seems to be intractable a difficult type of, of, of material you have to break yourself over and really think about it of course there's a great sense of accomplishment when you figure it out but that is the meaning of Torah study and that should be our aspiration for Torah study 
Then comes the Mishnah and says a fascinating thing. Do not lust for or thirst for the table of kings. Because your table is greater than their table. What's going on here? Who talked about tables of kings? We're talking about a Jew who clearly values spiritual pursuit. Values serving Hashem. I mean, why would that person want to go into politics all of a sudden? Where is the Mishnah coming from? And the answer is, based on a very, very beautiful mystical concept. That halichas oilam loy, al tikri halichas el halachas, say our sages. The world, the ways of the world, in truth, are really all about the halacha of Torah. In other words, Torah dictates, and Torah creates the reality, the boots on the ground is created by Torah. A simple metaphor. When, the, when a ruling, a Torah ruling is issued that something is kosher or not kosher, it's not a nice, cute, quaint thing. It's a reality. And if the Torah ruling is that this piece of meat is kosher, then you eat that meat, you will come closer to God, and the world becomes a more spiritual place. And if you don't eat it, when it's not kosher, you did the right thing. And if the halacha is that it was not kosher, and you ate it with the best of intentions, you accomplished nothing. And if you did eat it, you did a sin. Let's make this more practical. Again, a story that I, I uh, think I related a while ago, but it's a very relevant story. It helps us understand. Because when we talk about halacha, or, or the reality of something is kosher or not, it seems to be a little bit ethereal to us. So to concretize this, the story is told about the laws of tefa. Right? We talked about this. Tefa means torn. If the intestines are torn, the animal is not kosher. So this man has a dream in Poland. His father comes and says, you move to Israel right now. And he keeps having the same recurring dream, move to Israel, move to Israel, move to Israel. He says, why should I move to Israel? He says, because if you live and keep living in Poland, you'll be dead by next year. You live in Israel, you'll go on to live a long life. He says, why? And in the dream, it's explained to him that he has tuberculosis, or condition of the lungs, that the Ramah, who is the halachic master in the, in the world of Ashkenaz, in the world of Europe, rules, makes an animal trefa. Trefa means an animal cannot live for more than a year. Whereas the Beit Yosef, or the Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, rules that it's kosher. Meaning, the meaning of it's kosher means the animal can live for more than a year. Now, once we left Israel, after the first expulsion, the second expulsion of the second base of Migdash, we had a serious problem. And the serious problem was that when we're in Eretz Yisrael, which is the way it's supposed to be, any halachic decision would be brought to the rabbi. And if the rabbi wasn't sure, he went to a senior Bethan. And if the senior Bethan didn't know, it went to a senior ecclesiastic court. And ultimately, any question that was not resolved or was in doubt went to the Sanhedrin, the high court in Jerusalem. Now the problem is, the Beis English is destroyed, so the Sanhedrin moves. It moves to Yavne, it moves to Tveria, it moves to ten different places, ultimately it's disbanded. So now, what's the halacha going to be? And the other problem is, Jews are far-flung. There are Jews at that time already living in China, and Jews living in England, and Jews living in North Africa, and Jews living in parts of, 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 of Italy or in France. How are we going to come to a conclusion, especially because the world is changing? What is the halacha? So they, they instituted at that point a very, very important halachic concept. And it goes the following. Ba'asra de rav ke rav, ba'asra de shmuel ke shmuel. There were two great halachic masters in Babylon and Bavel. One's name was Rav, one's name was Shmuel. And if you lived in Rav's domain, you followed the halacha as Rav said the halacha is. You lived in Shmuel's domain, the halacha was as Shmuel said. What does God want? Is it kosher or not? Depends where you live. 
What do you mean? It depends where I live. If it's kosher, it's kosher. It's kosher everywhere. If it's not kosher, it's not kosher. The answer is no, that's not correct. That the halacha can tell you that in this place it's kosher and somewhere else it's not. And it doesn't make sense to us. Yeah, it's hard for us to understand. But the point is that the halacha molds reality. So, with Ramah rules that such a lung condition makes an animal a trefa, it won't live, what will happen? The animal will not live because halacha says it won't live. So the animal with that condition living in Poland or in Germany or in France would have died within the year. But the same animal that's living in Israel because the Beit Yosef ruled that it's kosher, that same animal will be able to live for more than a year. Why? Because the halacha dictates reality. I can't prove this to you. I can't show you a, a, a lab study. I believe it. I can only believe it. That's all I can do. You're having a hard time with this, huh? It's clearly, this takes a leap of faith. It's clearly not in the realm of the empirical. But if you believe in Torah, and you believe in halacha, then this is one of the things, one of the principles you buy into. And this helps us to understand why somebody would want gedula. Says, look at this. Not only when you, people are come to you and ask you what to do, they're going to listen to you, you actually are able to control the world. You actually can make a difference in reality. If the halacha becomes in a certain way because somebody ruled the halacha is the way it actually makes a difference. Yes? So I ponder over this. <clears throat> I buy groceries and the hexure is W-K. When I'm head kosher, is that kosher? <laughs> okay. Very, it's a very good question. The answer is that Ba'asad Rav Kedav, Ba'asad Shmuel Kishmuel is a halachic principle where there is a, a major issue, let, let us say, that was defined in one place one way and the other place the other way. There isn't that much of a halachic difference between Winnipeg and Toronto. They follow the same Shulchan Aruch. Okay, so, so the question is, is Winnipeg kosher a reliable group of rabbis or not? And I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that question. So it'll be a good idea to find out whether WK is kosher. COR I know is good. MK I know is good. BCK I know is good. I'm not sure. So it's a simple question of finding out whether the person, the Catholic supervisor, is a God-fearing person, if they take the halacha seriously. And if it is, it's kosher. What about hapshers that are in the States? Are they kosher? You have to know each particular hapshers. This has nothing to do with the realm of halacha. It's not... If you have a, a, a bad uh, kosher supervision agency, meaning they have bad business practice or they have bad halacha practice and they don't know what they're doing <laughs> then it's, it doesn't matter where it is just because it's there doesn't make it kosher we're talking about the difference between the Yosef Karo and the Ramah who had sincere disagreements and the halacha was this is the way it has to be for you and that's the way it has to be for you I'll give you an example where it's applicable today so on Pesach some Jews eat rice and some Jews don't so ask a simple question what does God want? What does God want? I mean, for heaven's sake, what does God want for me? Does He want me to eat rice on Pesach or not? How could it be that you're sitting next to me at the table, you're Jewish and I'm Jewish. You're eating rice and God's happy with you. I'm eating rice and God is angry at me. I'm doing the wrong thing. How is that possible? It's possible. How? Because of the halachic principle that says that when a gezeda, a decree was issued by all the rabbis of a certain place, it becomes binding halacha. And if you are a descendant of what we call Ashkenazic Jews, European Jews, which include a wide swath, then you follow that halacha. Once your community, you come from a community that accepted upon this halacha, then it's accepted. And that becomes binding. That's what God wants from you. And the other gentleman is from North Africa, or the other lady is from Egypt or Lebanon, and one of the lands where they follow the halacha according to the Sephardic sages, where they ruled that rice was permissible, and that's fully permissible. And the plot thickens. So suppose you're Ashkenazic, and you marry a man who is Sephardic. 
So does God want you to eat rice or not? Or worse, you're a, you're a Sephardic girl and you marry a guy who's Ashkenazic. What do you do? So the answer is, so when it comes to being Jewish, it follows the mother. When it comes to the particulars, it follows the father or the husband. And therefore, it's possible that a woman should get married. And this year, last year she ate rice and that was fine. That's what God wanted. This year it's not what God wants her to do. Unfortunately, the marriage doesn't work. And next year she's eating rice again. Provided she doesn't have a child. So when God can't make up as much as a child, it becomes a different story. Then you follow the, the, the then you, you go with your child. It's not so simple. Now, in other words, the point is, is it possible for the halacha to change? In this sense, yeah, the halacha could change. What does God want? God wants what the halacha says. And that becomes reality. And it's a leap of faith. I understand. Does this also pertain to Lagunita? With regard to certain chumras or kulas? following customs of your mother as opposed to following the customs of, say, of your husband's mother? That's a good question. That's a good question. I prefer not to answer off the cuff. Marco was asking about the laws of Nida, the laws that govern family purity. Should you do as your mother taught you or if your, father's, if your husband's family has different customs, then you follow those customs. My gut feeling is you do as your mother taught you. That's my gut feeling. I think that also when we talk about customs like that, the nuances of custom, while it's Torah, it's not halacha, right? And it's not it's not a major violation one way. Rice or not rice is a halacha. Now, where, where where will this be relevant for us Ashkenazim? I shouldn't say for us. For me, I'm from at least I trace my ancestry about 15 generations ago to Spain. But pragmatically speaking, my family comes from Russia. So, as an Ashkenazic Jew today. Living in, in, who lived in Ashkenazic land, that's where I came from, what will happen in a situation where there's a scarcity of food and it's a question of eating chametz or rice? What would God want me to do? Eat rice? The story is told that there was, uh, I don't remember when this was, but in the, in the early 20s, or maybe in the uh, 19, 17 or 18, there was war years, and there was a group of Jewish soldiers that they couldn't find enough food for Pesach. So the Chafetz Chaim actually was very involved with the Jewish soldiers in Poland and Lithuania and he wrote a special book of halacha for them dealing with very serious issues that only they had. What should they do? What should they do if you have a question of should you take a day off today that means you can put on film today but you'll have to violate Shabbos. Which one do you do? Serious soldiers who wanted to be observant of Torah but they had limitations. They're in the military. So at that time the question came what should you do there wasn't enough food. So if my memory serves me correctly, the story at that time, the covenant of uh, Rav Spector and the Chavetz Chaim came together to discuss this halachic issue with the, these, the Lithuanian soldiers, what they should do. And so somebody said, so listen, he says, Rabbanim, there's no food. Clearly, we should make sure to permit them to have rice. So the Chavetz Chaim said, no, we'll eat rice and send them the matzah. In other words, if you have a situation where we have a scarcity or a problem, let's say, oh, they're half Jewish. They're, they're not really Jews. They're, they're just in the army. Or, I'm not so observant, rabbis. Can I do it? Man, once came to me, he said, Rabbi, I'm not observant, so I'll drive it for you. I'll take it for you. So <laughs> they understand. You're as Jewish as me. What you choose to do is your business. But I can't tell you, say, well, I, I don't do that, so, so I'll, I'll take care of it for you. It doesn't work that way. So, so he said, the Chavetz Chaim said, no, we'll eat the rice and they'll eat the matzah. If you believe that's the halacha, so then that's the halacha that becomes the halacha for you. 
what is the truth? The truth is that that is an issue that has to be brought to rabbis of the day and they have to deal with it. I said a rab, not an ordinary rabbi. A senior rab, uh, one who's considered to be a halachic master, is, is empowered to make decisions like this. And it makes a real difference in the real world. And the Mishnah tells you that's not what you should be looking for. Now this kind of power, this, it's a very powerful thing. It's scary almost how much power they wield. So this, this spiritual power, which is spiritual, spiritual power, you have to believe in, which can have a, spirit, a physical effect, an effect in the material realm as well. So that is something that becomes almost like, like a ruling power, or which is akin to royalty. And the Gemara actually says, Man Malki, who is royalty? And the Gemara answers, Rabbanon. The sages, the rabbis, that's royalty. So now a person says, hey, one second, stop. You told me I shouldn't look for greatness. You told me I shouldn't, I shouldn't even lust dishonor. You told me just learn Torah. That's, you know, if I'm able to grow in Torah, I become like, like, like a, a melech. I become like royalty. I can actually change reality. I can dictate to the world around me. Isn't that something I should want to do? And this is not a crass kind of political uh, desire. This is spiritual. You become spiritually empowered. A rav has spiritual power. It's a very serious thing. Do you know that even till this day, the average sofa who checks your tefillin or mezuzahs or sefer Torah, if they have a question when they're not sure if something is kosher or not, they will never say, if they're normal, God-fearing and no procedure, they will never say, this is not kosher. They'll say, it looks like a problem to me. And they'll bring it to a rav, and only a rav will say, this is kosher, this is not kosher. You know why? Because once somebody says it's not kosher, it's finished. Once somebody who has a logic authority rules something to be not kosher, it's not kosher. It changes reality. And you have to be very careful with that. If our Rav has to watch what they say. And Hayom Yom, the Rebbe Rashab wrote, our Rav has to know that at all times he stands right on the threshold of being Mimachzike Harabim, one who brings merit to the public, or being Mimachshili Harabim, one who causes the public to slip. And to have a spiritual failing. It's a very, very serious position. It's a very powerful position. At least we believe so. Spiritually. So the Mishnah says, and this is really a mystical reading. Don't look for those tables of royalty. Don't look for that. That's such a great thing. It's so powerful. I can actually change the world. Not in a, in a physical, a material, or a crass way. Through my spirituality, through my Torah study. The Mishnah says something unbelievable. That Torah study, for the sake of Torah study, not to be able to change the world, is greater. Can you imagine? So it's greater to study Torah for no specific end, not as a means to and not because you have a halacha to rule on. It's greater to study Torah for the sake of studying Torah. A rav has to know that too. A rav has to study Torah not only when a question comes their way, but Torah study for the sake of Torah study. What is accomplished? So what does it accomplish when you strike a match on Friday night and you say, You make this, this blessing and you take the match and you kindle your candles on Friday night. And what is accomplished? You lost wax. You lost a match. And you lost two minutes of good time. What is accomplished? You would look at somebody and say, What are you talking about? I lit Shabbos candles. So you lit Shabbos. What is accomplished? Ah, just a belief. Take out the word just. That's a big thing. Belief is a big thing. It's a big thing. So I chomped on a little matzah on the 14th day of Nisan. So what? So what is accomplished? All the people who say, what is accomplished? Very interesting. When tragedy strikes, I've got to have that Kaddish said. What is accomplished? 
Somebody mumbled a few words in Shul. He could barely read Hebrew. What's the difference? What is accomplished? Your parent is dead. You lost them. What are you going to Shul for? What is accomplished? Ah, so the belief is a very strong thing. And even the Jews who say they don't believe, they believe very strongly. You just have to get to that point. At some point, everybody believes very strongly. And I want the burial done right, and I want the Kaddish said right, and I want to make sure, I just want to make, and my mezuzah should be, is it right, Rabbi, is it right? What's, what's accomplished? Hang it from the head, hang it from the ceiling, who cares? What's the difference? Come on, it's a mezuzah, I have to make it, why? What is accomplished? Belief. Because we believe, we are still sitting around learning Torah, 3,317 years later, and everybody else who was around 1,000 and 2,000, 3,000 years, they're long gone. They're in the Ram. You can visit them in the Royal Ontario Museum. But this is life. We're here studying Torah. What does it accomplish? When we sit around the table and study Torah, something wonderful happens. Can I prove it to you? I can't prove anything to you. I believe it 100%. And you believe it too because you're here. <laughs> what is accomplished when you leave here? Do you learn how to fill out a tax return? What is your game? You make another dollar? I learned Torah. So, you learn Torah. So what happens? A Jew understands that when he or she masters a Torah idea, a Torah idea becomes a part of you, something changes. And that's what the Mishnah says. Not only the accomplishment of halacha, which is very powerful, but even the accomplishment of Torah is greater in a sense when it's not studying Torah for any accomplishment whatsoever. <laughs> there once saw the halacha, there was a rabbi, Erev Pesach, was learning the intricate laws, and somebody kept says, Rabbi, you really think you're going to get a question in that area? I mean, this is so far-fetched halacha. Why are you learning the halacha? So he said that he once heard from his teacher that it happens if halacha is not studied for a long time, the halacha comes to heaven and says, says, it's not fair, nobody's studying me. I'm a halacha in the Torah, I'm part of your Torah, and nobody studies me. So what does God do? He makes sure the problem happens. The problem happens, people have to study it. So he said, I would rather people don't have problems. I'll spend my time studying all the halachas, mastering all the areas, both those pragmatic and not. And this way, problems won't have to happen. So what the Rav does actually has an impact in the world around us. And the Mishnah comes along and says to you, you're not a Rav, you're not going to become a Rav, but that doesn't matter. Shulchan Chagadol. Your simple Torah study, without any expectation, without any dividend, and you can't cash it in. You're not going to make a living off it. You're not going to be more respected for it. But you're doing it and you're toiling at it. And you're working at it. It's more valuable. Why? Why? Because that's the beauty of Torah study. Yes? Uh, it very simplistically, Rabbi. When I walk out of here every Monday morning, I have a smile on my face. When I get into that car... We accomplish something? Of course. It's, it's so here's the, here's the beautiful thing. You should know... That the smile on your face is the tip of the iceberg. You accomplish much, much more to get a smile on your face. That, that helps. And the yeah, truth is though, it's one and the same. Why, why are you smiling? Why are you smiling? So you spent an hour studying a mission that was written 2000. What are you smiling for? What makes a Jew so happy when he study Torah? And people are happy when they study Torah. It gives you a certain joy. Inside. Something inside you knows that something wonderful just happened. And that's why you're smiling. A Jew is happy. You know, I once went to visit somebody. He was, he was very, very ill. It was a, he died a month later, a few months later. And I, he, I was Arab Sukkot, and I went to visit him just to, I had very little time. And he said to me, look at my lulav. So I looked at his lulav, and unfortunately it wasn't kosher. And he was so distressed. I didn't know what to say. I said, I don't know, it's good. He says it's good. I couldn't say it's good. It wasn't kosher. 
I said, I don't know, whatever. He saw he was a smart guy. He figured, I said, it's not kosher. I can't believe it. He says, they got me not kosher little. He was so distressed. And, and, and I, I had no time today. And I went out of my way. I wish to help me. I found him a kosher little. And I dropped it off just before Sukkot. And he was so happy. You'd think I gave the guy a million bucks. The man is sick. He didn't live very long afterwards. I didn't give him money. What did I give him? I gave him this stick or that stick? It's a stick. And the day after Sukkot is just a stick. That's all it is. And the day before Sukkot is just a stick. It's just a branch. He's so happy because he got the branch. So superficially he's happy because he thinks now he can fulfill the mitzvah. Before he felt he couldn't and now he felt he could. But I, I think there's much more to it. Deep down there's a joy for the neshama. When the neshama knows it fulfills a mitzvah, there's an incredible joy. So that joy sometimes translates itself to our exterior world as well. And incidentally, when a person is sick, sometimes they're closer to that essence of the soul. Because the body weighs it down less and covers it less. The point is, when you do a mitzvah, sometimes you feel great about yourself. You did somebody a favor. You feel so good. Why do you feel so good? What's so good about it? You can't explain it. You don't know yourself why you feel good. You don't have to know. When you do the right thing, you feel good. When inside you're, you're fulfilled, when inside you're satisfied, superficially you're satisfied too. And that is the beauty of this Torah class. You're not becoming anything. You're not going to learn it for anything or have any specific use, possibly. shouldn't say that because you never know if Torah comes in handy. But you, you may not know if it comes out. You're not, you're not looking for that. Now, there's two levels in what we call... Any type of human activity can be experienced on two levels. At least two. One is internally and one is superficially. I'll give you a simple example. When you hear an idea... You can appreciate or relate to the idea internally because you actually understand it. Or externally where the idea washes over you. You can't repeat what you learned, but you're in awe of it. So you don't, but do understand at the same time. You don't understand it means because it doesn't actually permeate your being. It's not like food you digested and became a part of you. You can't repeat it later. But you, you did understand because it wasn't like sitting in on a foreign language. Have you ever done that? Sat in on a speech in a foreign language? very frustrating I had to sit at a funeral a number of months ago and the speech was in Farsi in person and I didn't understand a word that was going on and I said I'm glad I'm doing this now I know what somebody feels sometimes they come to show and I forget to translate into English it's very frustrating so I'm sitting there and the person's talking and everybody laughs and everybody cries I have no idea what's going on I sit like a gulab so I, I couldn't relate to it at all but has it ever happened to you when you listened you sat in on a lecture about any subject and you didn't really understand what was going on, but you did. Like, you understood the language. You, could, you sensed this was a great, great accomplishment, what was being said. Something wonderful was being communicated, even though you couldn't exactly understand it. When I was 16 years old, I heard of Aaron Soloveitchik speak at a Sim Harambam in New York. So Aaron Soloveitchik was one of the greatest Torah minds. It's never a broken body. It's like, totally bent over like this. Tremendous, tremendous Torah mind. And he spoke, I believe, for an hour and a half on the intricacies of Rambam. And he, he, he created this thesis where he wove together, I don't know, it was five or ten halachas in the Rambam, arguments, and he had this thesis, and he spoke for an hour and a half, and he wasn't uh, an, an orator. And I'm 16 years old, so to say that I understood everything he said, I still remember some of the things he talked about, but it was an incredible experience. I was 16, and I remember sitting there, listening in awe, because this person doesn't use notes, and he just talks and talks and talks, and it makes perfect sense. Even though I don't understand it. I knew enough to understand it made perfect sense. It means it washes over you. 
This is called in the language of Kabbalah Or Pnimi or Or Makif Or Pnimi means the inner light It's the light that permeates you It becomes a part of you Or Makif means the encompassing light It washes over you, it surrounds you Which is higher? Obviously the Makif is higher Because when I would listen to the speech and understand it It's because the material was very basic I wasn't intelligent enough and wasn't learned enough at that time to be able to grasp a very, very deep concept that was, you know, flying out like a machine gun with, with no, no interruption. Nobody could explain it to me in the middle. So this was a loftier type of lecture and a loftier type of idea and therefore it was higher than I. It was beyond me. So I couldn't understand it. So a higher thing sometimes will wash over you and another thing will, will, will permeate you. Similarly, Hasidus explains sometimes you have an experience that alters you, it changes you. A spiritual experience where you're, you're part of something and you don't really know why. It doesn't, like, what exactly did it do for you? It's like stepping into this envi- higher environment. A person might step into Shoal on Yom Kippur and be surrounded by everybody who's davening with fervor and they don't know how to use a siddur, they're holding a siddur upside down and they don't really understand anything and they feel very connected. They feel, they just feel wonderful. Where could that feeling come from? If they don't understand what they're doing, how could they feel wonderful? The answer is, if you stepped into a very lofty environment, and something inside you, in a shama, it connects. You feel something, you don't know what you're feeling. It's bigger, it's greater than you. Which incidentally is how Hasidus explains the mitzvah of sukkah. That's why a sukkah is one of the highest mitzvahs, because you're stepping into the sukkah. The matzah you eat, the sukkah you step into. Mikvah, something that surrounds you. It's a higher, it's a higher light, something which is greater. In a, in a smaller way, a talus is the same, it also it envelops you, but that envelops you that your size. Whereas the sukkah, the mikveh can fit one person for it to be kosher, and it doesn't have to fit more than one person. Whereas the sukkah, ideally, should fit all the Jewish people, it says. So the highest type of makif, it says, sukkah is David Hanevelas, the sukkah of David, which has fallen in, but will be real, when Mashiach comes. And its walls will be made of, it says, the hide of the Leviathan. And Hashem will create this massive sukkah. It's the greatest sukkah that will ever be. Why? Because every Jew will sit in the sukkah. It's something that's greater than all of us. It encompasses all of our, all of our differences. In Kabbalah, this idea is referred to as keter. Keter is the crown. So a person has the faculties of intelligence. Where, are, where do they reside? In your mind. The faculties of emotion, where do they reside? In your heart. The faculties of action, function, in your limbs. And then there is a faculty which is not specific to heart or mind or function. And that is called keter. That's called the crown. Why? Because the crown is above the person. Literally it's on top of a person and also it surrounds the head. It doesn't go in. And those are the inner faculties, not of intelligence or emotion or function, but the inner faculties, it says, of keter. There's a higher level of keter and a lower level. The lower level is desire or will. Right? With his willpower, you think better, you feel better, you do more, because you want to do it. And the higher level is pleasure. What drives a person at the highest level is an inner sense of fulfillment, inner sense of pleasure. So when you have pleasure, which part of you has pleasure? No part of you has pleasure, you have pleasure. When you think, which part of you thinks? Your brain thinks. When you feel, which part of you feels most? Your heart feels, your heart pumps faster. It actually happens. Your, your mind actually, there's a physiological change in your mind when you think. You can actually get a headache from thinking too much. You can get tired from thinking. Your head's oh, too much for me. I can't listen anymore. Your heart actually pumps faster. When you work, your limbs become tired. When you have pleasure, you have pleasure. It's not limited to any specific area. When you, when you have the desire, the will to do something, which part of you wants to do it? You want to do it. 
If it's jumping, your feet will do it. If it's swinging, your hands will do it. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But So the particular part of your body will carry out the action, but you want to do it. All of you. It encompasses you entirely. This is called Keter. So here the Rebbe says, the Mishnah is read now on a mystical level. Shulchan Cha, the table. Table is what? What do we put on a table usually? Food. And food, what do you do with food? You ingest it. So it re- re- relates to our pnimi, the inner light, the light that becomes a part of you. So he says, when you study Torah, not only is it greater on the part that you understand, but you should know that even though the halacha is such a wonderful thing and it governs the world, kis, keser, which is kisrecha, the supernal level of Torah, the level of Torah that bathes you, that encompasses you, which is a higher level, that too is greater. That too is greater. Why? Because you did it without any specific desire or will. The amazing thing is you read a Mishnah, which is clearly part of the exoteric area of Torah, and Hasidus turns it into esoteric text. Because Hasidus is not Kabbalah. Kabbalah is esoteric, and, and Mishnah is exoteric. Hasidus is neither. Hasidus is the inner essence of everything. So it will bond together mystical ideas, mystical concepts, with a very simple, pragmatic, ethical Mishnah. It's just another layer of reading. You have to peel off another layer. As Shleim HaMelech says, talks about apples of silver, uh, apples of gold that are wrapped in, in screens of silver, right? Tapuch HaIzov, Mashki Keser. What is Torah about? You, you look at the apple, it's beautiful. Imagine a silver screen of gold, it's beautiful. Then you peel away the silver screen, it's pure gold. So you have to keep peeling away layers of Torah. Now a Jew could say to himself, this is very high and lofty, I'm not there. Come on, I'm not there. My Torah study is greater than some big Rav Paskening and ruling a halacha. Even a tzaddik sins, and I for sure sin. And, and it, it, in Tehill of David Amalek says, Ulurasha Omer Alikim, Hashem says to the wicked, Malachal Chuki, who are you to study my Torah? So if I'm wicked, I do things that shouldn't, who am I to imagine my Torah study so valuable? Come on. How, how can I even attribute such things to myself? So the Mishnah comes along and says, You're in God's employment. You're doing what Hashem wanted. Leave it to Him. Hashem will worry about how to recompense. Hashem will worry about how to overcome your challenge. You're not perfect. It's okay. But if you're an avid, if you devote yourself to Hashem's Torah, and you study Hashem's Torah with true diligence, with true devotion, Hashem will take care of you. And ultimately, the fruits of your efforts and your toil will be repaid with the greatest dividends possible. And if that's not an inspiration to study Torah, I don't know what...